0: As we've been walking through this section of Genesis, Jacob's life, we've seen God's relentless grace on display over and over again. And so open my eyes to his grace, Help me to see it in some fresh and, and new ways, and, and I hope it's done the same for you. But one thing that hasn't been easy, it's been difficult along the way, is finding the right outline for some of these stories. You know, the stories don't come with a clean outline like some of Paul's letters where it's You know, one, A, B, C, two, A, B, C, three, and then you can track it logically like that. And so so this week, I was trying to get this kind of story put up into outline form, and uh, no matter how I frame it, you try and get every single point in there, and if I introduce a a sermon with 37 points, it just doesn't really have a great ring to it, you know? So I went the other direction, started cutting, 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 and found myself in a a different problem as I came to a, a sermon after I'd cut so many of the points, it was utterly pointless. And, um, and so I'm just trying to figure out what to do here. And so what I want to do is kind of use our outline as a, sort of like a couple of fence posts. And we'll, the outline will kind of provide the fence post to show us where we're playing in the yard and what the story looks like. And, and along the way, we're just going to interject a few application points. And so if you're, if you're taking notes, you may want a little sidebar where we can just kind of toss in a few application points along the way, tell the story, and see God's surprising grace coming throughout. What might be helpful is at the beginning, if we start with just the main thing I want you to hear this morning, and then we can go from there. Here's the main thing I want you to hear. God's grace comes to surprising people in surprising places through surprising means. His grace comes to surprising people in surprising places through surprising means. Shows up when we don't expect it to, to people we don't expect it to in ways we don't Expected to, we're surprised by grace. You know, a couple of years ago, I took my oldest daughter Tessa to a Reds game for her birthday, and these things are really exciting. You know, you get the, the daddy daughter time, you get the drive over, you get to stop at McDonald's, or at least she thinks that's the good part. Um, there, there's the beautiful stadium overlooking the river. It's all there, and so we get there, and her birthday's in July, so it's a, it's a humid, it's a humid day, muggy day. I'm sweating and all of a sudden it starts to break out in rain. And so, so what, what's everybody do? Well, they get up from their seats and everybody heads back into sort of the bowels of the stadium, right? And it's already hot and, and muggy and you have already been sweating and then the rain is on you and everybody's packed in there like sardines and there's nowhere to sit down and there's no way to entertain yourselves because you've got 30,000 people who all got on their phone to try and stream something on YouTube at the same time. And so, man, what am I going to do with a seven-year-old here? Like, this is not a great situation. So we decided to go for a walk. And as we go for a walk, we get up to the upper deck and we kind of look over the terrace. And if you've ever been to Cincinnati, you know on the, on the right is the skyline and on the left is the Ohio River, and as this storm is sort of rolling out, we see this gorgeous, gorgeous rainbow. It's not one of those faint ones. It's like the bold rainbow that stretches across the whole sky. You see all the colors. And, and the storm was, was unique. It was rolling out, and there's like this straight line in the sky where here over, it's dark, and from here over, it's light. You know, sometimes it's kind of a, a gradient effect. It wasn't like that this time. It was, it was crisp, and on, on the right side, where it was clear, it wasn't just a clear sky. Now it's like 8.30 at night because the game has been going on and you have this glorious sunset. Purple streaks across the sky, orange, yellow, red, and you're looking, it's it's a stunning picture. The river, the skyline, the rainbow, the clear break in the clouds, the glorious sunset. And in that moment, in that moment, I realized this is one of probably the top five best skylines I've ever seen in my life. And I thought I was coming to a Reds game to enjoy the time with my daughter and to see some baseball and have a hot dog at the ballpark. And that kind of got taken away by the rain. I started to get a little depressed. Like, this this stinks. I don't like being packed in here with all these smelly people with nothing to do. And along the way, I realized I just saw something that was better than I ever could have imagined. And it wasn't what I expected, but it was amazing. And that's a little bit like what we see in Genesis 28. We think we're doing one thing, we think it's going kind of well, and then it gets depressing for a bit, and God breaks in and surprises us and says, you didn't see this coming, but it's better than you ever could have imagined. That's kind of what it's like. So let's start off with Jacob's wondering, is where we pick up the story here, Verses 10 and 11, we see that he's leaving his home, his family from Beersheba. Look back at your copy of God's Word. I hope you've kept that open there. Uh, Genesis 28, verses 10 and 11, here's what we read. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So Jacob, he, he leaves Beersheba after being wildly successful. If, if you're new to the story, let me give you the sort of the spark notes version here. He's, he's gone and he wants this birthright that his brother has, sort of a privileges of being the firstborn. And so what Jacob does is he manipulates his brother into giving it to him for this bowl of red soup, stew. And so he's successful in accomplishing his plan. And then he wants to get the, the divine blessing from his dad, And so he and his mom make up this deceptive lying scheme, and they execute it perfectly. And Jacob gets the blessing he wants. And all of his plans seem to be working just wonderfully. He's getting the things he'd hoped for. But along the way, he's created all kinds of problems for himself. His his manipulative, deceptive, scheming ways, while on the the short run are giving him what he wants, his successes aren't bringing the life that they promised. His brother gets furious. He tries to kill him. He's making plans for how he can assassinate him. And so his parents send him off into the wilderness towards distant relatives saying, hey, go on your way and seek, and you have to run. And so he finds himself separated from his family, on the run, hated by his brother, always looking over his shoulder, and he's wondering. Now, part of the reason we know he's wondering in the middle of nowhere is when he comes to this place, it says he came to a certain place. The place doesn't even have a name. He's in the absolute middle of nowhere. It would be like saying, hey, I want you to go to where 267 and 136 intersect in the middle of Brownsburg and head west. You're going to go a little bit, and you're going to come to a town called Pittsburgh. You might stop in at Ricky's. You're going to go a little further west. You stop in at Liz and grab lunch at the Rusted Silo. And then you're going to go about 10 miles further west, and then you'll come to a certain place. There's no name for it, it's just kind of a certain place in the middle of nowhere. And it appears that in Jacob's wondering, he's not only found himself in the middle of nowhere with nobody around him, he's lost everything that he had. Because he, when he lays down, what does he use for a pillow? A rock. Now if you have anything left to your name, I promise you, you'll use that instead of a rock for a pillow. You got a backpack left over? Better than a rock. You got an extra pair of socks? Better than a rock. Like, anything beats a rock. You know, some of you know that Emily, my wife, is uh, in Costa Rica with the Send Me team. And, uh, and one of the ways you know that you've kind of run out of the storehouses at your house is when mom is gone, you've burned through all the meals she prepped for us to, you know, have ready for us. We've burned through all the frozen pizza. We've exhausted all of our gift cards. Then you resort to ramen noodles, It's like when you bust out the ramen for dinner, that's when you know you've kind of hit rock bottom on the food prep side of things. Now, fortunately, we haven't done that yet. I think we're going to make it to tomorrow afternoon when she gets here. But that's sort of where you find Jacob. Like, I've exhausted everything. I'm in the middle of nowhere with no one and nothing, and I lay my head down to rest. Sometimes that's where we find ourselves in wandering, isn't it? Seems all alone. Nothing's going right, nobody around us. And there's all sorts of reasons we might find ourselves in a place of wandering. Maybe like Jacob, you had a lot of successes and they didn't quite pan out like you thought they would. Maybe like Jacob, you feel totally alone. Maybe like Jacob, you feel like you've lost everything. Or maybe it's just the mundane of life that feels like a wasteland where you're wandering to and fro. You've kind of got some relationships and you've kind of got a job and you've kind of got a few things going for you, but it just feels like a wilderness where I'm wondering, I'm not sure what's going on. You know, the original audience would have known this feeling well. This was written down for the Israelites while they're in the middle of the wilderness wandering. They're saying, oh yeah, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be in a certain place with no one there and with nothing that I can lay my head on. I think it's important for us to recognize that this aimlessness, this wandering feeling, it's a pretty normal part of the human experience. Nobody ever longs for it, nobody ever prays for it, but it comes to all of us. I think this is part of the reason that so frequently we're looking for something bigger than ourselves to be a part of, to ground us despite our varying circumstances, why so many different ad campaigns say, hey, here's a way to be a part of something big. And that's good. It's good to be a part of something bigger than yourself, but recognize that's true but incomplete because you need to be part of the right thing that's bigger than yourself, right? It's not just part of being a bigger thing. You know, you need to be part of God's kingdom through his church. We say local churches are like embassies in a foreign land for God's kingdom, gospel embassies, We come together with his people and say, yeah, this is what I need to be a part of here. We need to be joined to his mission, proclaiming his gospel. That's what we need to be part of that will ground us whatever circumstances come our way. And in Jacob's life, what what we read here is that the sun had sort of set on him. That actual language is there. So Moses, as he he writes this down, is, is giving this picture for us like a master painter laying it out, that as the sun sets, we see darkness of day, darkness of circumstances, and darkness of his soul, because we see no mention of him desiring God, no mention of him praying, no mention of him seeking the Lord, just discouraged. And yet, in this surprising time, God would break in with his grace, Jacob's not pursuing God, but God's relentless grace is always pursuing him and it's pursuing you. So here's your first application point this morning is when you pick up this book, you read it looking for grace. You read this book looking for grace because you can read it looking for rules. You can read it looking for moral principles or general wisdom. Those are all there, but if you read this book looking for those things primarily, you're going to miss the point. Thus far in this book, In this series, we've been here a year and a half or so. We've seen Adam and Eve in a perfect paradise, and they make a horribly wrong turn. So, the moment that we think that we need some better circumstances to get us on the right path, we are reminded by them they had the perfect circumstances and they still went awry. They needed grace. And we see Noah, who's the only righteous one, and the world around him is wicked, he's in a hostile culture. And God delivers a literally once-in-a-universe kind of deliverance to give everything a fresh start. Let's start over. Let's cleanse the culture. Let's cleanse the world. Let's make everything new it would look like. Then Noah goes and gets liquored up with his family, passes out naked in the living room. He says, you need grace. You don't just need a culture that's not so wicked anymore. We come to Abraham and God reveals himself in a personal and special way. He says, Abraham, I'm going to use you. I'm going to do something amazing in your life. <laughs> Abraham goes out and turns into a habitual liar and an adulterer. Who doesn't trust God, says, I'm going to go do it my way. So the moment we're about to say, well, I need God to speak to me in a special way in this situation right now. Well, Abraham had that and he still screwed it up. Up to this point, we're seeing over and over, you read this book, you come to it saying, I need grace more than anything else. That's what Jacob would discover here. He says, I need God's grace while I'm in the wilderness. And God gives it to him. This brings us to our second point of Jehovah's promise. God shows up. Verse 12, we read how God shows up. Here's what Moses records. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Now this is a surprising and a shocking image to see right here. From this man who's run away from everything based on his rebellious, wicked choices, is alone in the world, not seeking God at all, Despite Jacob's pursuit of everything that's unholy, God breaks into his life in a dream. He says, I'm going to reveal my grace to you. And the original reader is automatically going to know this is a divine encounter. As Jacob goes into the deep sleep and God is revealing things, the original reader, and you can track with this, it's not hard to see. Genesis 2, Adam goes to a deep sleep, God promises in his grace, I'm going to give you what you need. You don't even know what you need. Genesis 20, King Abimelech he has Abraham's wife, doesn't know it's her, his wife. God comes to him in a dream and says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to tell you this is not good. Don't do this. And the image that is probably most at the forefront of the original reader's mind is actually Genesis 15, where Abraham is there, and God puts him into a deep sleep. And God comes and says, I'm going to unilaterally create a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to choose to love you. Remember what Genesis 15 said, As the sun was going down, that's when God came. When the darkness was closing in, that's when God came. That's what happens here. The readers are hearing all of this. And there's a a ladder that is on the earth and it reaches into the heavens is what we're told. That that word ladder is kind of a tough one to translate. So, So you'll see ladder in many translations, the ESV, the New King James, the New American Standard. You'll also see many translations that call it a staircase, Either of those work staircase might be what you find in the the NIV or the CSB or the the New Living Translation. But the point is this, it's an access point to God. Whether it's a ladder going up or a staircase, it's a a little bit, you know, we'll leave that for heaven when we get there. But it's an access point to God. And there's a clear contrast being made here, going back to Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel. Where they're building an access point to God. There's these, these ancient things called ziggurats. You see a picture of one there. These ziggurats would be uh, temples, towers that are built. And you remember in Genesis 11, what they said is, hey, let's build a tower up into the heavens. Let's build a staircase to God. You remember this? And all of the other temples, all of the other ziggurats, all of the other ladders, all of the other staircases has always been from earth to God. And this time God says, no, 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 no. I'm starting here and I'm coming down to you. And at Babel, what did they say? Let's not be dispersed because there's safety, there's security when we're together and let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make ourselves significant. They're seeking security and significance in building their way to God. Say, we can do this. God says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You don't build a staircase to me, I build a staircase to you. And the security and the significance that you're going to seek by getting to me or erecting this career or this little kingdom or this family or anything you're trying to do, no, no, that only comes. The security, the significance, it only comes through an encounter with me. So look for it there. There's even a bit of a foreshadowing of the book of Exodus here where God's people go into into Egypt, into slavery. They're delivered. God comes down in a pillar of fire. So I'll give you the security, the significance you need. You don't need Egypt's approval. As they're let out into the wilderness, the end of the book of Exodus, we find instructions for how to build the temple where God's saying, here's how I'll come down to you. Here's how I'll make you secure. Here's how I will make you significant when you encounter me. Notice this for Jacob: this encounter with God, the security, the significance it brought was entirely undeserved, entirely unsought, Jacob wasn't seeking it, and entirely unexpected. We see in Jacob's life, God showing surprising grace to nobodies in the middle of nowhere who deserve nothing. It says, I will pursue you with relentless grace. That's Jacob. Nobody in the middle of nowhere, deserving nothing. God shows relentless grace. Here's your second application point. If you got that little sidebar going, Here it is. Any place is the gate of heaven. Any place is the gate of heaven. Here's what it means for you don't box God in to where you think he can show up. You've got places where you think God is going to show up and do something awesome. Maybe it's when you come into this building and through the preaching of his word, God does do amazing things, but he can break into anybody's life at any place in any way that he chooses. He said, God won't show up in this relationship. That one's too far gone. I don't think God's gonna show up in this trial. I mean, he might kind of get me through it, but he won't amaze me in it. I don't think I'll see him at work today. I don't think I'll see him in my office today. Friend, maybe this morning you need to repent of your small views of God. Because you've got him boxed up tighter than a box of cereal, and his purposes are bigger than the entire Costco store. He is at work. Any place is the gate of heaven. God breaks in to nobody's in the middle of nowhere who deserves nothing and says, I'm going to show you grace. Here's the thing about Jacob coming into this encounter. He knew all about God. He didn't yet know God. He could have given you probably a really good doctrinal statement about God. He could have recited the moral code that he was supposed to comply to. Those things aren't enough. Friend, you must encounter the living God. God breaks in and reveals himself. Here's the third part of the story that we see next. Jacob's worship. So we first saw Jacob's wandering and then Jehovah's promise. Now we see Jacob's worship. Verse 16 You pick up with me? Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He says, How awesome is this place. Maybe the most overused word in the English language right there, awesome. Everything's awesome these days. It's so awesome that nothing's awesome anymore. Since Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? That word could also be translated, how fearsome, how dreadful is this place? It's the actual meaning of awesome, not our lame meaning of awesome. It's the same word that we see around, or the idea at least, in Exodus 33. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, you can't see my glory. Maybe you'll just see a shadow of a shadow, and it'll light you up and change your world. It's a similar picture of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah goes into the temple, and all he sees is the last couple threads on the train of God's robe. He just sees the last two or three threads we're seeing, and it fills the entire temple and blows his mind. He says, woe is me, I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. This is what Jacob's feeling. The angels are ascending and descending on this ladder or this staircase. They communicate the glory and the majesty of God. Whenever angels show up in the Bible, do you know what they usually say? Don't be afraid, it's okay. Because it's terrifying to see the glory and the majesty of God on display. We reduce it and make it so small. We think the little angel, our guardian angel shows up and it's like, oh, hey, buddy. That's not how it is in the Bible. It's just not how it works. And Jacob is terrified because you would see me and seek me and show favor to me. Like Mary, when the angel shows up, Jacob is saying, how can this be? I'm a nobody in the middle of nowhere who deserves nothing. He would see the God who effortlessly spoke into existence both distant galaxies and subatomic particles. The God who perfectly controls the forces of nature and the plans of nations. The God who artistically designs sensational sunrises and majestic mountains and wonderful waterfalls and all of that would see, I see you. I'm gonna seek you. I'm gonna show favor to you. Relentless grace coming, he says. Look back at verse 18 with me. So Jacob responds. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob here shows he's worshiping. He says, whatever I have, God, I'm going to give it back to you. Whatever I have, I'm immediately going to start using it for you. All I have, the only thing left is this little rock that I use for a pillow. And instead of being a pillow rock, it's going to become a pillar rock. And don't lose sight of how striking this must have been. A rock to be used for a pillow cannot be a big rock. Right? So just imagine what he's, he's setting up this pillar. He's probably down like so. God, I'm giving you everything I've got. And it looks like nothing to everybody else around. It's a picture of the the widow giving her two mites. I don't have much, but whatever I have, I'm going to give to you. I'm amazed at who you are, that you would show me grace. I respond in worship. And then he says, whatever you give me, whatever in the future I get, I pledge a tenth of it. I'm giving you everything I've got now and pledging to continue giving all my time, all my talent, all my treasure. It's all yours. I recognize that. This is actually one of the the mentions of the tithe in the Old Testament. It's a voluntary act of worship in response to God's grace. It would later become commanded for Israel only to return in the New Testament to be a voluntary response to God's grace. It's a great place to start the tithe, 10% of giving to God's kingdom. And the hope is that as we grow and mature as believers, we see more of God at work, we can invest more and more and more. He'll grip our hearts and we say, Lord, I'm going to give everything that I have to you. You can't help but read this and think of Romans 12:1, where Paul, after laying out the whole beauty of the gospel and all of its excellencies, says, I, now, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Put your whole self on the altar. Holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. See what God's done, I respond and worship. There's something else I want you to notice here. If you look at verse 20, we see a remarkable, remarkably weak faith coming out of Jacob. Verse 20 has five if statements from Jacob. He says, if you'll be with me, and if you will keep me, and if you will feed me, and if you will clothe me, and if you will bring me to my father's house in peace, then I'll do this. And it might be easy for us to kind of slap him around, like, Jacob, are you serious, man? You're a nobody in the middle of nowhere who deserves nothing and God shows up in his grace and says, I'm gonna bless you. How in the world can you look back and say, if if, if God, you'll do this and this and this and this and this? We could try to slap him around for that, but maybe we see somebody with a baby faith, a small faith saying, I don't really know what's going on here, but I'm trying to follow you because I know you're God and I see your grace in my life. It's a little bit like you ask a seven-year-old to write an essay on what love and romance and marriage is supposed to be like. And they give you a paragraph or two, and it has nothing anywhere near a resemblance of reality. You're not gonna go scold the seven year old and say, what a stupid essay, don't you know that's not how the world works? Say, no honey, that's beautiful. Stay at it, and as you grow and as you mature, you'll have a better understanding over time of what this looks like, and I love where you're at right now. So don't despise small faith. Don't despise weakness, but humbly say, God, I see who you are. I'm coming to you, and I'm offering myself as the living sacrifice. This is my holy, acceptable spiritual worship. Here's your third application point. Recognize this. God reveals himself In weakness. And so, as you, like Jacob, feel weak in your faith, don't despise the weakness. Say, it's in my weakness that God reveals himself. And I come to him confessing my weakness. Look, I've said this a couple times, I'll say it again. Jacob wasn't praying, wasn't meditating on scripture, he wasn't building an altar, but God still revealed himself. God looked at him to the absolute bottom, saw everything in his soul, and loved him to the sky. And this can be difficult for us to understand, but our weakness, catch this, our weakness actually attracts God's love to us. It allows his power to be more on display. There's a prophet in the Old Testament that you don't... Necessarily, hear a ton of sermon series is walking through, but the prophet Hosea, in chapter eleven, verse eight, Hosea would look out on God's people and record God's word, and says, "My heart recoils within me, but my compassion grows warm and tender." And I think for most of us, when we see our own weakness, our own sin, our own failure to live by faith, we think of God's heart recoiling within Him, pulling back. Yeah, I don't really want to have much to do with you right now. I think I'll kind of turn over this way and wait for you to come to me, God says. He doesn't say that. That's what we think he says. Let's be really clear about that. And the second part of the verse says, no, my compassion grows warm and tender. How does that happen? Well, imagine a small child excited to bake chocolate chip cookies with mom. The timer goes off and they reach in without a hot pad. They grab the tray and pull it out. God looks at that child and says, my heart recoils over what you're doing to yourself and warm, tender love oozes to take care of you, to get that out of your hand, to put the burn protection on there and let the healing process begin. That actually when you make that mistake, little kid, that's when my heart is drawn to you the most. God reveals his grace to us in our weakness, not in our strength. So friend, as you feel your weakness, Understand that your heavenly Father is coming to you. His heart is growing warm and tender and compassionate towards you. Romans 6 would say where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. That it feels like when I sin in the swimming pool of God's love, I have take a scoop out to cover my sin. Somehow there's a little less there than there used to be. He says, No, 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 that's all backwards. Sin increases, grace abounds. Somehow, when you sin, the pool grows deeper. There's more of it for you. This is astonishing, but it's who God says that He is. And so we come here to verse 22 with this picture of God revealing Himself to Jacob in His weakness. And it seems like maybe the story is complete. Nobody, middle of nowhere, deserving nothing. God's relentless grace pursues him, breaks into his life, promises these things. There's a response of worship. That's the end of the story, right, Justin? Close, but not quite. We've only got one part of it because when Jesus arrives, he would actually tell us, you've only got the first half of it. Now, fortunately, the sermon's not only halfway done. I've not made that error. But I'd like you to turn over to John 1. I want you to see what Jesus says here. If you've got the Pew Bible, it's page 887. John chapter 1. I don't want to look at the last little section there of John 1. Starting in verse 43. It's kind of the last subheading. Notice what happens here. You've got Jesus, this is early in his ministry, right? So it's the first chapter of John's gospel. He's calling his disciples. He calls Philip. Philip follows him. And Philip immediately goes and gets his friend Nathanael. What does Philip say? He says, hey, Nathanael, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. And we, we don't know exactly what the relationship between these two guys is but they're they're friends in one way or another. Notice what what Philip doesn't say. He doesn't go to Nathanael and say, hey, I found a guy to fix your marriage or to bless your job. I found a guy to make your life better. That's not the introduction we get. He says, no, we found, you know that guy that Moses, the Messiah, Moses wasn't the Messiah, Moses was writing about the Messiah. You know when we read about that together, Nathanael? I found him. You know all the prophets, how they were all pointing ahead to the Messiah? I found him, Jesus of Nazareth. You get the idea that these guys have done a whole bunch of Old Testament Bible studies together. They were first century Theobros. Like, they knew what the scripture said. And what does Nathaniel say? Seriously? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Does God break into nowhere places? Surely he doesn't show up there. And Jesus sees Nathanael. He has a really interesting introduction. He doesn't call him by name. He looks out and he says, behold, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You should imagine for a second, like you're you're walking down the sidewalk and the God of the universe is there and says, there's an American who doesn't tell lies. How do you respond to that exactly, right? And so so, so Nathanael is like, Well, yeah, they call me Honest Nate, but uh, how do you know me? He's confused. And Jesus says to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I knew you. And we get almost no information about what's going on here. Like, how long ago was he under the fig tree? Don't know. How far away was the fig tree? Don't know. What was he thinking about under the fig tree or doing or talking about under the fig tree? Don't know. But we kind of get the idea that maybe it wasn't one of Nathaniel's better moments. Maybe he's thinking something under the fig tree that he would really prefer that nobody knows he was thinking. Or maybe he was doing something out there that like, yeah, that's the part I don't put on my biography. I don't want anybody to know about that. And Jesus says, hey, before Philip called you, I saw you there and I knew all of you that even though everybody sees you as honest Nate, there's a lot more to your story that's not quite so sparkling. And I still know you and love you. Because look at, look at his response. What does he say? Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What? Nobody would know what I was doing there and still come for me. Here's your fourth application. The object of your faith is more important. It's greater than the strength of your faith. Whatever Nathaniel was or wasn't doing under the fig tree, he's clearly showing bigotry towards Nazareth. God doesn't come to those people. He didn't come to that place. Those are the backwoods rednecks. God didn't come there. He looks like a theology nerd who's a hypocrite who looks down on people. Jesus comes to him. He doesn't have strong faith. Jacob, we'd already talked about, he's not a picture of strong faith. He doesn't have upstanding morals. But these are weak people with weak faith and a really strong object. And so, friend, this morning, do you feel weak in your faith? It's okay if you do. We hope that you'll grow stronger in your faith But the only solution is to cling to Jesus. Say, I I don't know if I can even forgive myself or be forgiven. Cling to Jesus. I don't know what I'm going to do this week. I need transforming grace because I've tried all the self help stuff and it's not getting me anywhere. I just press restart on the treadmill again. Cling to Jesus. The object of your faith is far more important than the strength of your faith. So Jesus looks at Nathanael. Nathanael says, surely you're the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus says to him, he says, oh, that got your attention, did it? I tell you something, Nathanael, you will see far greater things. Look at verse 51. Look down, John 1, here's what he says. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you hear him invoking Genesis 28 there? He says, Oh, you're the Theo, bro. You know the Old Testament. You know this? Yeah, that's me. And there's, a, there's a shallow and a, and a thick way to read this. The, the shallow way is just to say, Oh, Jesus knows the Old Testament. He can quote from it and prove he's God. Good job, Jesus. You made your point. That's true, but it's incomplete. What's the deep, the full meaning that I think we're supposed to see here? Well, let's let's read verse 51 a little bit more closely. Here's what he says The angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Friends, this is remarkable. I hope you caught that. He's not pointing, there are the steps to God, there's the staircase to God, there's the access point to God. No, he's saying, I'm the access point to God. I'm the staircase. I'm the ladder. And every other belief system in the world is based on, there's the staircase, and he says, I'm the staircase. It's not a what, according to Jesus, it's a who. Not a what to do, it's a who to believe in. So you think through these. What does Islam say? There's the access point, go follow the five pillars. Buddhism says, hey, there's the eight steps to enlightenment. Go follow those. Judaism says, here's the Ten Commandments. If you're more irreligious persuasion, modern secularism, what does it say? Don't merely accept and tolerate everyone. You must celebrate every single persuasion of sexual perversion. And if you won't celebrate every angle of it, then you've not had the access point to God. That's what you must do. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong, whether you're going to church or you're not, whether you're going to a temple or you're not, a mosque or you're not. It's not a what, it's a who, it's me. It's me. I've come to live the perfect life you didn't live. I've come to die the death that you should have died. So that as the angels are ascending and descending on me, you can cling to me by faith and I'll take you to God. I am God. It absolutely flips their world upside down. He doesn't come saying, this is merely an inspirational speech. You see how I'm going to come and live and die and rise again. Nathaniel, you know the scriptures predict that. An inspirational speech just runs out after time. He doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, just go be like me. Try to live a self-sacrificing life. Think of others. He says, no, cling to me because I am the only righteous one. If you think back and Jacob had a ladder, goes straight up and down, Jesus says, no, 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 it's an elevator and it's me. There was a staircase. He says, no, no, it's an escalator and it's me. Friend, have you recognized it this morning? Have you confessed Jesus as the Lord of all the earth, the true King of Israel, said, you are the only way to God. And Jesus, I'm crying out to you. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. He'll save you if you will. Christian, we say this almost every week. To recognize that God is seeking nobody's in the middle of nowhere who deserve nothing and shows grace is utterly remarkable. That is to delight in the gospel. Say, wow. You are the staircase. You are the ladder. You are the access point to God. And that's how I live as a Christian, by clinging to that, desperately clinging to that relentless grace, that surprising grace, to fight against sin, to restrain my tongue, to be courageous in mission. It's not by white-knuckling it. Do better, do better, do better. I could do it this week. No, I need your grace this week. I'm weak, I'm flawed, I'm reading this Bible, looking for your grace everywhere, Jesus. Because there's no other way. And as Jacob would ask his five-part questions, he'd say, will you be with me? And Jesus says, yes, I'm Emmanuel, God with us. Jacob asked, will you keep me? Jesus says, yes, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And Jacob asked, will you feed me? And she says, yes, I'm the bread of life, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. And Jacob asks, will you clothe me? Jesus says, yes, I'll clothe you in my righteousness that's better than any righteousness you could ever find. And Jacob asks, will you bring me to my Father's house in peace? And Jesus says, yes, I've gone to the cross and made peace with the Father so that I can take you there. And I've actually left, and I'm going, and I'm preparing a place for you now. Friends, the response for us is the exact same as both Jacob and of Nathan. Jacob falls down, he builds an altar, says, what I have I'm giving to you now, and I recognize that it's all yours, and anything you bring to me will be yours. I worship you. And Nathanael says, surely this is the Son of God, the true King of Israel. I worship you. Because when we see surprising grace, relentless grace, there's only one response, to fall on our face, Say, you are the staircase to God. You are God, and I worship you. So, I want to do something a little different as we wrap up this morning. I want to challenge you to think on this. What does a response to God's grace in your life look like this morning? What does that look like? Does it mean confessing Him as Savior? Asking to be forgiven of your sins, to have a home in heaven. Maybe you've never done that before. Friend, I would love to talk to you about that after the service today. Maybe you're here as a Christian and worship feels a little rote, a little cold, a little calculated. Come on Sunday here for an hour and a half, two and a half if I do Sunday school, head home. I have a bite to eat on the way. I've lost sight of how surprising his grace is. What does a response of worship look like in your life today? Do you have that in your mind? We'll have a minute here for you to pray and confess where you've not been worshiping. And consider how the spirit might be leading you to worship. But here's the second thing I want to push you to do. And this might be uncomfortable for some of you. It's uncomfortable for me to do this, so you're... Well, depending on what kind of company I am, I may be, you may be in good or bad company. I want you to tell somebody, here's how I see God moving me. Now, you don't have to be pharisaical and go put it on social media and say you're gonna do all this stuff, but we know that as we delight in the gospel, we also grow through relationships and we need each other to pursue Jesus together. And so maybe it's something really private where I'm just gonna tell a spouse or parent, I need your help I think God is pushing me to take this step in faith. And maybe it's a close brother or a close sister. You say, this is what worship looks like for me today. But when we're surprised by grace, it changes our life, and it doesn't stay stuck in the pews here on Sunday morning. That much is a fact. Surely he is the king. Let's pray. Father, we've seen your grace on display and we're wowed by it. You come to nobodies in the middle of nowhere who deserve nothing and show us grace in ways we would never expect. We ask this morning that you would strengthen us to confess who we are to you Confess our failures to you. Confess our our flawed righteousness to you, our flawed good deeds to you. Confess our thoughts to you that we, we don't want people to know about and our motives that we try to hide from ourselves, knowing that in our weakness, you reveal yourself in grace. Oh, we need you. Help us by your spirit, we pray.